This podcast is made possible through donations from listeners like you and our partners at Goalie Ashwa Gummies. You can find them at goalie.com. Use promo code the Show Up That Foundation to get 10% off your order. Zendurance Active Wellness and Sports Nutrition. Their products are designed to maximize your health. At Zendurance, they strive to support and have a positive impact on the wellness of every hardworking dad. Use my code, the show up dad, and get 10% off your next purchase. For more info, go to www.zendurance.com. Tall Man Equipment, standing taller than the rest of the competition in Lyman Tools since 1952. Give them a follow at www.tallmanequipment.com. And last but not least, Adam Lane Smith. He is an attachment specialist who helps people to heal, connect, and build. Use my promo code SHOW, spelled S-H-O-W, for a 50% discount on his attachment boot camp course. Thank you. Tonight's special guest is going to be Eugene Gloudman. Eugene Gloudman is a journeyman lineman and a father of four. He is 38 years old. And he is also a former police officer. We back the blue here on the show up dad and any of our first responders. So we're glad that he's, you know, he was a, a former police officer and now a, a journeyman lineman. So it's really awesome. In 2012, he started the JATC apprenticeship program and he graduated. He's been a union shop steward where he helped mediating labor management relations. Since 2019, he has become the assistant director at CalNev JATC, which is probably one of the best apprenticeship programs out there in the country for the uh, IBEW Lineman Apprenticeship, uh, you know, association. So pretty awesome. Stoked to have him on here to talk about fatherhood. And uh, let's go ahead and welcome our guest. He's he's just a, an awesome, accomplished father. Let's see what we can learn tonight. Okay, so we have Eugene Gloudman. Is that how I, am I saying it correctly? Gloudman. Gloudman. Okay. Well, welcome to the show, brother. This is a podcast for tradesmen. I'm super stoked to have you on here. And, and just thanks for coming out here today for today's episode. I kind of want to kick things off today by having you give listeners an overview of your story, both personally and professionally. Got it. All right. Well, born and raised here in Southern California. Currently 38 years old. I'm on my second marriage, my second career, father of four children, two daughters from my first marriage. They are 19 and 18, and I have twin boys that are eight years old. Back in 03, entered uh, the police academy uh, for the city of Colton as a police officer. Became a police officer, things went pretty well there, kind of a fast riser. Got to play cops and robbers for about seven years. And in about 2010, there was a, a decision that had to be made. Ended up hitting a fork in the road career-wise. Went from being a, a journeyman lineman, if you will, of police officers. Wasn't a whole lot that I hadn't done or couldn't do. Really had a lot of fun there. Uh, just came natural to me. Uh, I, I was I grew up in, in rough neighborhoods, so I knew the, the criminal element. I knew people... I knew how people struggled. Nonetheless, hit a fork in the road, had to transition careers. And all of a sudden, kind of had my identity stripped from me, if you will. Had a resume that was very, very strong. And it was basically good for nothing. 
in that field at that point in time. Mm -hmm. So kind of just reverted or defaulted, I guess you could say would be the better word, to my blue collar roots. Mm -hmm. All of my brothers are inside wiremen. Uh, four brothers that are journeyman wiremen, all of which are, they were working IBW, uh, union trained, union work. And one of them, kind of the wisest one, we'll call him my brother, Tim. He says, uh, you're not going to fit in in here. And, and I said, yeah, I, I agree. I don't, I don't know that I'd, I'd really like it. And I started entertaining the thought of maybe going into a law program. Mm -hmm. And the more, I, the more I looked around and kind of kicked around ideas as to how I could do maybe an abbreviated program just to pass the bar, start looking on that. And then really looking forward, kind of, I guess you could say, beginning with the end in mind, what the hell am I going to do? Am I going to prosecute? Am I going to defend? Am I going to go into corporate law, civil law? I, it just nothing really seemed to be a good fit. So Tim had suggested, you know, you need to be a lineman. Rewinding back to when I was 18, there was a guy named Gary Epigraph, and he worked for the city of Colton there. They have their own co-op. Mm -hmm. And uh, he told me then, he says, don't, don't, don't become a copy G. He said, become a lineman. I got a spot for you right now. And I said, nope, it's what I want to do. He says, all right, pursue your dreams. Well, all of a sudden, I needed a job, and Gary worked at the hall. So, <laughs> and he says, I told you so. So, anyway, I said, don't rub it in, buddy. What do I got to do to become a lineman? He says, well, it's going to be a rough road. You're going to have to sign the books for months on end, and hopefully you'll get an opportunity. And uh, took my first call, and haven't had a week without a paycheck that I didn't want. So line work was a natural fit for me. Uh, it, it's, uh, I thrive in environments that are filled with meritocracy. I, I love, love hard work, and I love being incentivized for it. That's what line work is. Currently, we live out here in Yucapa, California, Southern California town. It's about 60 miles east of Los Angeles and about 25 minutes west of Palm Springs. Uh, oldest daughter's in the Army. She's down in El Paso right now. Uh, she's studying nursing. She's currently in her A school. Youngest daughter's going to be going into the National Guard. She leaves boot camp on the 29th of this month. Uh, boys are dealing with uh, a lot of the COVID adjustments much like everybody's children's are and how that affects the household mm -hmm. but all in all doing doing pretty dang good matter of fact wife's got him at a little ninja warrior class so they stay active they're pretty agile little suckers pretty pretty athletic and we just want to keep nourishing that currently i work at the uh about a year and a half ago i'm sure we'll go into more detail uh, actually approaching two years ago an opportunity popped up to go into the California, Nevada, JATC. That's where I did my apprenticeship and became a journeyman lineman. And uh, the more I talked to people, kind of spoke with some mentors, looked for some advice on what I should or shouldn't do. Uh, you know, I was kind of in an ego struggle there. I didn't really feel like uh, it, it was the right timing career-wise. But then uh, it's just basically... All those mentors, all those guys that, that I looked to for advice, they told me to get my butt in there. So I took the job opportunity and things have been just uh, remarkable, remarkable. Got little to no complaints. Got a good wife. 
good life, great neighbors, great family. That's me. <laughs> That's so awesome, dude. I mean, your story is amazing. Uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on here is because I see a lot of the similarities that you went through with me uh, as far as transition going and stuff like that. Uh, I was in the military. I did five and a half years of a combat swimmer and a medic. God bless you. And uh, I came out and one of my good friends, he, uh, he wanted to go to uh, Blackwater Security. <laughs> and uh, I had met my girlfriend at the time, which later on became my wife. And we were going to go to the Middle East. And I was like, nah, I don't want to go. I don't want to, I don't want to do that. You know what I mean? I'm tired of that stuff, you know? And uh, he wound up going back into the military and I wound up, uh, going to school and getting a degree, a degree in computers. You know, I, I remember my, my father telling me to, uh, you know, work smarter, not harder. You know, you try to use your brain, don't use your back, you know? Gotcha. So I was like, okay, I'll go into computers and stuff like that. I, I got a degree in computer networking and I worked in that. And then, uh, one day I had to, uh, meet my younger brother and, uh, I went to this little mountain town and I was waiting for him to come by. And all of a sudden some dude rolls up in a cowboy hat, <laughs> big old line truck. You know what I mean? This truck was huge. <laughs> and it was a big old four by four, uh, line truck. And, uh, he gets out and I'm like, what the heck is this? You know? And he's just like, Oh, this is the truck I drive. I'm like, really? I was like, what do you do? And he's like, I'm a lineman. I'm like, what do you mean a lineman? And he looks at me, he's like, like a, a power lineman, bro. You like power? He tells me. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I thought, you know, lineman, football player, whatever. You know what I mean? He's like, no, man. He's like, your whole family are linemen. Come to find out, my uncles and my cousins are all been in the trade. And one of them owns his own line company called Line Constructors, Constructors here in the Southwest, you know, yeah. and uh, all union. And uh, it, it just went from there. I was just like, oh, man, this kid's, you know, he's making great money. He's younger than me. You know what I mean? He's got a $90,000 truck and here I am with a college <laughs> degree and barely scraping by. So needless to say, like you, I made a transition into the trade. And back then you'd go before a board of guys and they're all old cowboys, old linemen. And uh, the first questions they would ask you is, well, have you ever bucked hay or built fences? You know, I did that when I grew up on a on farm. So they're like, okay, well, get ready to work. You know what I mean? And that's how they put you to work. You didn't have to have a CDL. You didn't have to have OSHA 10. You didn't have to have all these yeah. requirements, climbing certification or anything like sure. that. It was just, they take you to work. And for the first six months, you learn how to use a shovel and you shut the heck up. You know what I mean? <laughs> right on. You know, so that's kind of my transition, you know, and I, I think that's pretty awesome how you have to transition from being a cop to, to the line trade and you know vice versa like me you know what i mean so uh i, I will say mm -hmm. on that note though what we're seeing especially with the modern climate with law enforcement and how um the, the media and a lot of society the lack of appreciation for them you know they, they say that was a thankless job but you know that the general population knew that you were an absolute necessity mm -hmm. and without you it'd be 100 chaos what we're seeing over there at Cal Nevada in our applicant pool, it's the same personality type. You know, these guys that would otherwise uh, have gone into to law enforcement, 
especially since law enforcement has gotten away from the trend of of hiring ex-military and and seeking people with degrees a lot of those guys that discharge the military that fit in just fine in our industry and line work they they don't necessarily have that degree although the, the, here, here they are they're already combat trained they know how to use a firearm they know what it's like to look long, long hours they know what it's like to make a decision under pressure um, they know what it's like to be away from the family. They know what it's like to be in stressful circumstances, right? All of those things are great for both law enforcement and line work. I genuinely believe that that personality type. So we're seeing a lot of those guys that are coming right in here and they're fitting in perfectly that, that we probably would have lost um, as candidates had the, if the climate in law enforcement was a little bit friendlier right now. Wow. That's amazing to see that. No, that's good. I mean, a lot of the kids I've been seeing have been all ex-Marines and stuff like that, too. You know what I mean? Sure. I get yep. a lot of those questions, too, is, hey, man, how do I transition? I'm in the Marines, you know what I mean? And how do I transition to this? And, you know, of course, we always say, you know, get into a good accredited IBEW program. You know what I mean? Yes. Stuff like that. And uh, that's really awesome. So, Gene, I wanted to have you tell the audience who don't know how big of a problem we have with having effective fathers as the head of household. Can you shed some light on how big of a problem this actually is and why it occurs? Well, I'll give you a little bit of background there uh, as far as, I guess, maybe to help validate my own insights. Mm -hmm. My parents had 15 kids. Uh, it wasn't very methodical. It wasn't planned out. Uh, it certainly wasn't accurate accidental either uh, heavy catholic just old school my dad was born in 1936 my mom in 39 uh, both uh, products of orphanage and and kind of the juvenile system if you will mm. and they found each other and they just started making babies uh, one thing that you know we didn't have a lot of money we didn't have we weren't living high on the hog we didn't you know christmases were were pretty empty um, by the time I was having my Christmases, my older siblings, you know, were of work age and had their own families. Anyway, one thing that we did have was somebody who was there. Um, couldn't even pay registration fees for Little League. Okay? That's how poor we were. Uh, didn't get to play organized sports till I hit high school and things were free. But what I did have was a dad that was willing to play catch with me. I did have somebody that was, you know, physically present that loved me and told me to shut the hell up when I was wrong and praise me when I did something good. Um, you know, it didn't matter what happened. If I was in the knockdown drag out fight, if I was, you know, involved in some type of, you know, neighborhood drama or something like that, mm -hmm. you know, he was like, all right. You know, one thing I'd give you a little bit of analogy. I was in a huge bind, you know, 17 years old and, uh, discovered that I'm going to be a dad. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I'm, I'm just weighed heavy and it's, it's, you know, what the hell am I going to do? You know, and, you know, I had some potential to possibly go play college ball and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I had to, had to derail that and, and switch to plan B. So I go and approach my dad and uh, break down crying. And I tell him that, you know, I, I got my girlfriend pregnant. And his response was, why the hell are you crying for? <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he, he didn't chastise me. He didn't, uh, you know, he's like, this is a blessing, man. You know, this is nothing but a blessing. You're going to be a damn good father. Mm. And it's like 10-4, Roger. And I just, I don't know, I just, something came over me. I just got a snarl in my eyebrow. And and that that little vote of confidence that, that I had right there mm. that could have gone the opposite direction, you know. I mean, 
you know, a lot of parents would say, oh, no, you're too young, crush dreams, youthful parenting, so on, all these different factors. You know, what if she's not the one? You know, they just instantly go into the future mode, right? Yeah. But, you know, one thing that 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 was just, I think, a, a walking, talking testimony of what a present and involved father looks like is, is so powerful. And I think it's it's more powerful than any book you could ever read, you know, and you know, here I am as a father and uh, be honest with you, I'm, I'm opposite in a lot of ways of my father in terms of my ability to provide, you know, I can buy her luxurious things and offer all the comforts and the club sports and the different things like that that my kids want. Um, I don't think they're going to remember all of that. I think they're going to remember the physical presence of a father, you know, the love of a father, the, the, the effectiveness is, is just much more powerful than materialistic items. And so that first marriage, first two daughters that lasted eight years from 18 to about 26 years old. And, it, you know, who you are at 18 and who you become at 26, it's, it's, there's a huge transition there. You know, you go from young adulthood into some, I, I call it adolescent adulthood because realistically you're very young still. You don't know a whole lot at 26. Mm-hmm. And uh, at this point, I was five years into my law enforcement career and, and her and I just, things weren't panning out. You know, we weren't extremely happy and, and uh, you know, I've seen countless uh, couples struggle and, and just kind of put on their game faces for the sake of the kids. And I always told myself I wouldn't do that. You know, that, that as parents, we were, uh, we're an example of love to, the, to our children. So if the love isn't sincere, they're going to see it. And so instead of putting on a show until they were 18 and then divorcing the next day, uh, you know, we decided to, to part ways. Mm-hmm. There were some rocky times there in the early on as far as custody, support, things of that nature. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're doing what we had to do. And one of the biggest things when divorcing is, is just submitting yourself to not having a choice who she finds companionship with and her not having a choice because it's not only companionship for you, it's a parental figure for your child or your children. You know, we had two daughters. Um, sometimes we were dating awful people and sometimes we were dating great people. You know, at the end of the day, we both wound up with uh, amazing, you know, people. Uh, give you a little funny story. We'd go to our daughter's water polo game, show up on the pool deck, and uh, they'd get teased like, oh, there's Emily and Elias, four parents, because <laughs> we'd all sit next to each other. Uh, we'd all hold each other kids. We'd all, uh, it just was a, a unique dynamic. But to get to that point, David, was painful, you know. I, I, I can't even. It took all four of us completely submitting our egos, mm-hmm. submitting our. <laughs> It, it, it took every one of us and any one of the four could have screwed it all up. Mm. And we all kept our game faces on. We all knew what our common interest was and it was the success of our kids. And, you know, he's a gifted man in, in ways that I'm not. And I got, you know, gifts that he doesn't. And so they see things from four versions instead of just two. So, I'm sure going through it in the early stages of the divorce and, and having been in split households, they didn't see it. But I think in the long run, you know, it was an ultimate blessing for them. 
and you know they're turning out to be very dynamic young women and it, it's just amazing to see it really is man when you're saying that i picture a table and the four legs that are holding up your kids you know what i mean and all it takes is one of those legs to pop off beautiful analogy and then it just throws your family dynamic into teetering mode yeah mm -hmm. so 100% would that, that's so awesome that you guys are all on the same page you guys are gelling together you know and you guys all have that vision to put away your egos put aside your differences and problems right mm -hmm. and to focus 100% on your kids and their future i mean that, yep. that's a testament right there brother i mean that's amazing yeah and it, it's been it like i said it's it's been easy and you know some of the different parenting efforts uh, you know the girls you know two two young pretty blondes you know they had instead of having just two sets of eyes on them they had four sets of eyes on them and some of the dynamics and the different stories that uh, a teenage girl can create uh, would would uh, maybe that's more of a, a cold beer conversation <laughs> <laughs> right right but nonetheless uh, they're, they're doing great things that's so awesome to hear that brother uh, I wanted to go ahead and dive into some of these questions here for you. And uh, I'll start with the first one. What are some practical steps fathers can take to improve their effectiveness in the household with their marriage and with their children? Practical steps. First off, like I mentioned, be present. Mm. It's very difficult to be an effective father uh, by virtue of a voice over the phone. Yes. I mean, how many of us have been there where for some reason, the wife just can't seem to command the respect that the father does. Mm -hmm. um, and you find yourself that every time you pick up the phone, the wife's ticked off, the kids are running all over and she wants you to correct them from hundreds of miles away. Or when you're at hour 27, you know, and you're, you're in the middle of a lacious pole or something, right? And then now you got to pull up, put on a completely another hat and hope that your voice is effective over the phone. It's not. So physically present is a key ingredient, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And that that's number one. If you're going to be a, a legitimized voice in your own household and you don't want all of your lectures and your discipline and everything to fall on deaf ears, you got to be there. Uh, number two, uh, I'd venture to say and see. I know I'm going to bounce around here and I, I don't think these are in any particular order, but just look at that, that premise, you know, protector, provider, presider, you know, you just, I, I think that is us in its most caveman form. <laughs> yeah. You know, you don't want your family, you don't want your children to be harmed. So if they know that dad's there to protect them, that's something that's going to be kind of an unspoken affection right there. Right. Having that halo right there that, that you call dad and presider you know you you're this is your umbrella <laughs> you know you, you're protecting it from rain and that that rain can be pretty vicious the rain of this world the rain of their peers the rain of um just there's outside forces everywhere we all know that mm -hmm. and uh you know just presiding over your own household and making sure that that you're raising it with a moral compass and, and that moral compass that you as you and i know uh it's getting more and more confusing and diluted Shit. you know so so gravitating towards a you know a biblical premise mm -hmm. and you know the more you 
I, I know we could really dissect religion here if we wanted to, mm -hmm. but as I see it, I think in most most religions, you're going to have some form of the Ten Commandments, you know, contained within there. You know, certain common law things that you can and can't do, right? Mm -hmm. And you kind of, and then, so just having that that moral compass and making sure that that they have a, a fear that's greater than than this world, mm -hmm. you know, that you know have that subconscious just constantly with them. If I do this. Nobody might see it. <laughs> yeah. I'll get away with it. But somebody saw it. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and having that that little hint of abstract fear there, it, it's gonna adjust your your behaviors. It, it it adjusts our behaviors as grown men. It adjusts our behaviors as you know our spouses. Um, you know, that that premise of integrity and you know, doing the right thing when no one's watching, right? Mm -hmm. That that's a difficult thing, you know, because temptation's an ugly sucker. Now, third, see steps to. I, I think one thing that I've seen a huge mistake made. It's too much too soon, and I'll leave names out of this. But let's just say that you only have your child. Uh, we're speaking to Lyman here, right? A lot of the audience is blue collar, so there's going to be a lot of split households, right? Yes. Now let's imagine, let's say you got an every other weekend circumstance, and you're going to have to make your impact in just a couple of days, correct? Yes. And then in that couple of days, you find out some pieces of information that you may not agree with. You know, maybe some something that the mother's allowing. And then you spend your entire time with your daughter doing nothing but correcting. And I don't know that that's effective, you know, because mm. Here she was doing something. She thought she could share some information with you mm -hmm. or he, and they share that information. And you spend the entire time raising hell because you're pissed off about it. Excuse my language. Sorry about that. Um, so I think too much too soon yeah. it can, can, be, can be ineffective. And it could actually be steps backwards. Mm. So it's... It's tough, you know, especially in the shared custody circumstances, because you got to make your time valuable. You got to be really, really calculated with those brief windows of time that you actually have. Them. You got to generate experiences and form bonds. And so making up for lost time is, is uh, it, it's got to be at the, the, the core of your goals for that time you do, in fact, get them. Hmm. Absolutely. I don't know if that's making sense to you. No, absolutely. I mean, one of the biggest things that I always talk to the audience about is influence. Time is influence. You know, uh, John Maxwell always speaks about that. And uh, in order to have that influence, you got to be able to make that time, you know, and yeah. it's so important. It's so critical that just like a lot of the, uh, the soft and hard content that we put out there on the show of that and, and uh, you know, the group that you're a part of and stuff like that is information that has been taken from just the father being present. This isn't even saying that it's a good, a, a, you know, a committed, uh, an engaged, a responsible father. This is just the father who's just there, you know, yep. and <laughs> just his presence alone, just being there dramatically increases the chances for your child to, to be, do better in school, 
to uh, not be engaged in some of these uh, bad things that are going on in the world. You know what I mean? It's so critical, just our time and our influence to, like you said, just to, especially with joint custody, like, like how you guys do it. You know what I mean? You mm-hmm. got to make that time and effort to be able to gain the hearts of your children. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's so important as well. You know, let me go ahead and uh, move on brother to this other question I have for you. It's uh, for those that do not yet have kids, what type of things should they consider and focus on if a family is in their future? Well, I, I hate to be so rigid in mm-hmm. that in that answer there, because I, I think, you know, just like in my circumstances, I, I've had children mm-hmm. unintentionally and intentionally, you know, so I've been in a circumstance where you couldn't really forecast uh, the future. Mm-hmm. Well, stable employment, you know, get yourself on a career path. And we could all sit here and say money's not everything, but when it's in the bank, it sure does help, doesn't it? <laughs> and and so I think stable employment, you know, because I think, and I'm not saying you need to be rich. What I am saying is that the stresses of wondering where your next meal is coming from and how you're going to provide that to a family, it, it shouldn't be there. You know, you should work your 40 hours, manage your income and, and put yourself in a position where um, you got yourself a rewarding, fulfilling job. Mm-hmm. And you could at the very least provide it for this family. Mm. Okay. And if this is in the context of, you know, a current companion, okay. Is this somebody, is this somebody that I, okay. She works out well for me. The intimacy, intimacy is fantastic. The companionship's great. Uh, All these different categories, these bases are covered with her and I, right. Mm -hmm. Well, the recipe gets a whole lot thicker when you bring a child into the mix and you can't really because we don't have a crystal ball we can't we can't tell honestly when we throw that child into the equation you know you can't really visualize the type of mother that she may or may not be and the type of parenting philosophies that you may or may not share mm-hmm. And so to really, really get to know the person that you intend on parenting with and to really dive into those issues and to really navigate through those deal breakers early on before you start to bring somebody else into this world is critical. Mm. Um, In my first marriage, for example, that is an amazing woman. Um, She's got a great moral compass. She's a heck of a mother. She's damn good friend and she's not not cut out to be my spouse you know and all those other categories she's a 10 you know but in terms of our our long-term compatibility it wasn't present and could i see that you know from the early on no and would i take back a day of what we went through not a chance in hell um so to forecast your companion is really really important uh, I'll, I'll be very generalized in my occupation right now in my seat. Um, unfortunately, I won't let go of the specifics here, but when we do interviews, we'll sit across from apprentices and we'll ask them, 
we'll say, hey, you realize that this apprenticeship covers two states, correct? And these two states, you know, north and south and California is a good sized state. And so all of California, all of Nevada. And for three and a half years, you will not have a say-so over where you work. And they sit there and they nod, yes, 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 absolutely, sign me up. Where do I start? When can I start? And they sit there and they look as dead in the eye. And, and, they, and of course, I think they're underestimating the opponent here, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because they, they don't know what that's like just yet. And a lot of them, I'm single. I got, I got that. I got the trailer outside. I'm ready to go today. Handful of months goes by. And uh, they're a young man with a good career. They're making good money. Uh, they're in great health. You know, a lot of young athletic men in our, our industry, right? Mm-hmm. Or you know what? They find that companion. <laughs> and before you know it, uh, they might start procreating. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, they got these, uh, all these external obligations that when they said they're willing to travel and they're willing to be assigned wherever. And there's been unfortunate moments where I've been told that Eugene, if you give me this assignment, I'm going to lose custody of my kid. And unfortunately my reply is, is I, I can't bear that cross, my friend, you know, I, I seriously can't do that. And, and if, so evaluating your spouse, you know, evaluating that companion. Yeah. And, you know, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, when, when those gentlemen, you know, made those decisions, they didn't forecast a woman that would literally strip them of custody if they had to hit the road. You know, no one could know that going in, you know, yeah, because otherwise you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. But here they are, they got their child on this earth. These are the cards that I got. Let's throw them on the table. Let's figure this out and make it productive. And, and that's the mindset that I hope these guys really, really get into, you know, cause you're seeing them. They're in their twenties there and their children are very young. And, you know, the spousal support, well, the alimony, the child support, you know, half their check is going to that. Hey, dude, you got to be more than just that paycheck, you know, more than, than just that, that money shows showing up, you know, that mom may or may not be spending properly, you know? Yeah. So, and, and the only way your child's going to really know whether or not you're just that paycheck is by you physically being present and you forming a strong bond and you taking part in their upbringing. So uh, I know that's only a couple steps, you know, just. No, you, you, you nailed it perfectly, brother. Cause I mean, even some of the kids I get from California that come work with me out here in the Southwest district, I mean, they would, they could get into CalNev because we all know, you know, CalNev's freaking hard to get into, you know, mm-hmm. you guys have a dynamic program over there. So we got a lot of California kids coming to the Southwest. Yeah. And so they're leaving their families in California. Okay. And they're pursuing this career, this calling that they have to become a lineman. And a lot of the ones I saw would completely, they're living basically two lives. And I saw it, I recognized it in them because that's what I was doing. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was living two lives. I had a life that I was at home and then a life on the road. Yeah. You know, and uh, living two lives like that, totally, you, you, you get lost. For me, I was lost. Like, I didn't know which hat to put on. You know what I mean? So when I'd come yeah. home, I was always in lineman work mode, you know, cussing and, and, and everything else because, you know, 
almost every word that comes out of a lineman's mouth pretty much in the field is, you know, effing this or effing that, or, you know what I mean? Yeah, I understand. So, so, you know, you come in from that environment, you come in, you know, you got high tension, uh, you know, you got the heights, uh, voltages, everything like that. You know, you're, you're taking care of your guys, whatever you're, you know, you're your brother's keeper. And, and then you go from that mode to bringing it back home when you do get home. And it's almost like you forget how to act. I know for me, that's how it was. I'd come home and I was still in that mode and I was creating anxiety in my family to where they didn't celebrate me being at the house, bro. I mean, they're like, man, is dad going to leave again? Hopefully he leaves. You know what I mean? Because they wow. just the anxiety that I brought to the household with my presence, mm-hmm. just super, just over the top. You know what I mean? I, I had gotten comfortable with chaos. Gotcha. You know what I mean? So if something chaotic wasn't happening, I was not happy. You know, I have to have chaos, whether it be, you know, starting a fight or whatever. You know what I mean? What are you doing? Clean up your room. You know what I mean? No wasted moves. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right, right. And, and, and that's where I think separating uh, career and, mm-hmm. and some of the, the cultures that exist out there and not bringing those home. Some of those cultures are great, you know, when it comes to efficiency, when it comes to teamwork, when, but to present those to a kid, we can't do it the same way we do to each other. There, there's no way that they could wrap their head around it. Um, we all understand its purpose, right? Because yeah. if we're effective linemen and we're effective as a crew, for one, we're not going to go home nearly as beat up because we're, we have a good synergy about ourselves and, and we're very um, productive and we're making the company good money. So they're paying us good money. Everybody's happy. It's a win-win, right? So there's our incentive, right? Wages. I don't think you can pay your kids what linemen make (laughs) in order to get them to buy into those same cultures. But that's where us as parents, we got to be clever in how we introduce those things to our household. And at the same time, you know, they aren't our grunt and they aren't our apprentice. And you know, with children, and this is going back to, you know, law enforcement back in 03, when I was being trained as a trainee, and I remember my FTO, my field training officer telling me this, he says, you know, I, I, 21 year old kid, I don't know how I'm supposed to act towards these people. So I just kind of took an early posture. And I was, I don't know the exact strange words, but I was rather commanding and whatnot, on a contact. And we got back in the car and Sean tells me, he says, hey, you can do it that way if you want and you'll get compliance just because you got a badge and a gun. He says, but I can tell you right now, you're going to get more bees with honey than you will with salt. And I was like, 10, four. So then he, he gave me permission to use my vocabulary and I got a decent vocabulary and I, I can, at time when, when I'm in a good rhythm, I got a silver tongue. So I can, he gave me permission and he told me right there that I didn't have to act like that that I didn't have to be like that, that I didn't have to treat people that way just because I've witnessed other cops treat people that way. And when he did that, it just, it, it turned it turned me loose. And um, I think we're, it's the same with our kids. Um, we get more bees with honey than we will with salt. And when they think they're part of our team, which they are, right? Yeah. We're going to gain much more compliance than we ever would with that demanding, commanding presence. Now, don't get me wrong. 
another little sequence that I follow is something that Sean taught me too, is you ask them, you tell them, and then you make them, you know, mm. hey, buddy, go clean your room. Okay, that sucker's dirty. I need you to get it cleaned up. It doesn't happen, right? So then you tell them, I said to clean your room. Did you not hear me the first time? And then at some point, you're going to have to make them. And that's where the discipline comes in, whether you're revoking something or it turns into a spanking. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think the opening dialogue, you know, allowing that to be pleasant, you know, is going to be far more productive than, you know, we, we can talk to our buddies certain ways, man. And, and uh, I, I, you know, what, my brother told me one time, he says, you know, somebody uses, you know, cuss words that just shows a lack of vocabulary. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think it's a challenge. My, my parents didn't allow me to cuss around them, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm certain they knew full well that I probably cussed when I wasn't around. But at least they threw the restriction on me to where it almost created an internal switch, right? Yeah. Where I can gauge my environment and know whether or not I can drop those F-bombs or not. Yeah. And I don't know if that was intentional or not, but I, I carried that same... Uh, standard with my daughters mm-hmm. and so that they when they're in a job interview and they know that that language is inappropriate can they speak naturally and comfortably and have a good flow to their dialogue right mm-hmm. but if all they ever know is is line talk right if all they ever know is line talk then they're going to be rather awkward when they when every fourth word they can't stall with an f-bomb right exactly. so so it's uh, <laughs> i don't know it, it, it's rough Oh, it is definitely. Uh, what helped me a lot was this book. It was written by a cop. Um, I don't yeah. know if you guys had to read it. It's called the uh, Verbal Judo. I love Verbal Judo, man. Dude, that it is a powerful. great book. I mean, sir, is there anything I could say or do to make you change your mind? Exactly. And I sure cool. like to hope so. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's one of the famous lines right there. Yeah. And, you know, but, no, uh, verbal judo is powerful. They're actually starting to, uh, my wife has seen, my wife's a, a nurse in the ER. Uh-huh. And when they're having tr- troubles gaining compliance with patients and whatnot, they can't just call a cop every time, right? Or just be bugging security. So mm-hmm. even as nurses, they, they've actually explored some of the tactics in verbal judo. Mm-hmm. And it's effective communication. It really is. And I think Lyman could use it with their apprentices, you know? Um mm-hmm. You know, hey, bud, you you don't seem to be learning very well. You don't seem to keep up. Every day seems to be the same day repeated. Is there anything we can do to make this better? Mm-hmm. Right? You're shifting it into him. You know, tell him what he's missing. You know, or, or allow him to to tell us what he's missing. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, yeah, verbal judo. That that's good stuff. Yeah, that's a tactic that's been. I don't know what year that book's been written, but every academy um runs at it pretty hard so and that was in 03 when we went through and they would actually have classes on it and some guys just had a natural gift for it they just picked up the uh they picked up the premise and and their personality allowed for it right wow 1993 brother there you go so it was already 10 years old when i went through the academy (laughs) so no but i i agree with you too uh you know i think a lot of the uh like going back to just our trade a lot of the linemen could benefit from speaking to the apprentices that way. Cause um, the way I was raised was they showed you once they let you do it and then you mastered it. And right. if you could do it, 
year down the road. That was it. You know what I mean? The, the old linemen didn't, uh, they didn't have time for messing around. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you know what, those memorization tactics and, uh, and that the, I think the focus, right? Uh-huh. So yes, we are dealing with a, a different generation. Okay. Yeah. There, there's a real good book called the coddling of the American mind. Right. Mm-hmm. Amazing book. Remarkable book. Start off with Fortitude by, by Dan Crenshaw. Okay. And so Crenshaw, he's a congressman down in Texas. Yeah. Um, it's not political, not at all. It, it's, it's more of, it's the real modern landscape that we're dealing with, right? And then the coddling of the American mind. And it, it basically tells us that there is something to the particular generation that's in our workforce right now. And there's things where we can't undo the did, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but do we accommodate it or do we become uh, very clever in the way we, we make the adjustment, right? Mm-hmm. So one thing that I see, you know, mind you, I have eight older brothers. My parents had 15 kids, like I said earlier. Uh-huh. I knew what a good big brother looked like. And I knew what a bad big brother looked like, okay? That they weren't all good. And... So when I see these linemen, they'll get this apprentice and, for example, oh, he was potholing and he, he dug into some irrigation and the, the dumb bastard didn't even know how to fix the PVC. And, and okay, copy that. And then so the more he talked, the more I kind of diagnosed it. And I said, have you ever asked that kid what his upbringing was like? He's on, no, I'm not here to know about his background. And I said, what if you're the first masculine figure he's ever seen in his life? Mm. What if, you know, I just, it's just a question. I mean, I, I know you don't want to adopt them, but you know, <laughs> if, if your kids intend on being linemen someday, and let's say this kid gets through the program, this young man who can't pe- repair PVC could potentially be your own child's journeyman lineman someday. So the time we spend with this guy, we have to make it powerful. And getting to know their background so that you can cater to their deficiencies, I think is critical. It really is. And so when you see it from a big brother standpoint, the way I think um, we've really gotten away from in our industry. Yes. Um, I think if you see a good journeyman lineman who's able to teach an apprentice, I'm, I'm going to place money on the fact that that guy's probably a good father. Yes. I, I'm, I'm going to say there's a direct parallel there. There is. I, I've seen it. Um, uh, just, uh, just to touch on that, uh, one of the guys I call line daddy. Okay. Okay. Great guy, highly knowledgeable. One of the best assets that I saw from him is he was a leader. He was a natural born leader. This guy wow. would take the worst of the worst. I mean, he was always that <laughs> lineman or foreman who, if there was a bad guy in the group, he'd be like, here, send him to me. Yeah, he would take that apprentice or that lineman who was screwing up elsewhere. He'd put them on that crew, and he would find out what their strengths and weaknesses were. Mm-hmm. He had this ability to do that, and when he did that, he would let them roll with it. He would tell them, "All right, bro, go." You know what I mean? If, if he, all you could do is go punch holes with a pressure digger all day long, you know what? You got a job. You're gonna feel better about yourself. Go do it. Yeah, and he would. He yeah. would find out their strengths and weaknesses and dude that dude i mean he was amazing and to see him work in that aspect and then go home 
and see him how he was with as a father. I couldn't say, you know, him him being a husband because that was another story. You know what I mean? But as a father, he was actually a really good dad. I would be in the truck with him. You know, I spent a lot of time with this man. And I'd be hearing him talking to his son. You know what I mean? We're both on the road out of town. He'd be talking to his son. And, you know, something would happen or whatever back home. And he would talk him through it. He would break it down for him and just kind of get his son to think through the problems. Yeah. And I was blown away how this guy operated. But you are absolutely right because there is a direct correlation with a good lineman and a good father. Yeah. What's that saying? And I picked it up, you know, I think uh... – I like reading a lot of uh, books written by special forces and whatnot. And yeah. you know, I was in the SWAT community and that's more of a domestic setting, but um, you know, I think uh, maybe it was important to you. It was one of Jocko Willing's books, but uh, you know, there's no such thing as bad teams, only bad leaders. Exactly. And, and they've proved that on little small boat operations, competitions and buds and whatnot, where, you know, you had a designated leader. You didn't just, you know, go through the group of men until you found your leader. No, he was the designated leader. Mm-hmm. And if he led like hell, then the team performed like hell. And they decided to run a little experiment where the team that consistently came in last and the team that consistently came in first, all they did was swap the one person, the one person, the leader. Mm-hmm. The roles were then inverse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. <laughs> oh, I've seen it. <laughs> you know, at, you've been in the military, and yeah. if you got somebody who just can't call a cadence, or you know, then everybody seems to go to hell, right? You know, Absolutely. if you got somebody who's not respected, you know, that, that that's another thing about you know the household. You must, you, you can't just demand respect. You know, you have to live things that naturally are going to acquire that respect from your children. You know, to walk into a room and demand it. Yeah, I think that's just dictator rule. You know, you're you're gonna you're gonna get it, right? Because yeah, you run the house and then you can lead with fear, but um you're not gonna have a sincere respect from your children Absolutely. if that's the way you run it. Yeah, it's just gonna turn into a toxic uh, a, a, a toxic environment and the next thing you it know will. you got your children in the twenties and thirties seeking help. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? When they should be raising their own kids. <laughs> you know absolutely. What I mean? so and, and i think that's where that, society well, is today i mean all these people are in you know they're they're trying to figure out what happened to them when they're younger and everything else you know what i mean yeah i'll tell you what you know on those lines you know there's you know childhood trauma is real it is you know and it comes and it comes in, in so many different forms and I, I think perspective in my opinion is a huge ingredient that a lot of people lack because mm-hmm. You know, our own adversities mean the most to us. Why? Because we were there. You know, we felt them. We, we knew what that felt like. We knew what that looked like. And so it's much more magnified than we could ever explain to anybody else, right? Yeah. But if you were to just put yourself in a legitimized comparison to, to some of the things that people have endured, I think we realized real quickly that, that, man, if that person survived that, then I'm doing just fine. You know, and then you start to tap into a part of your brain where you just kind of tell yourself to get over it. You know, you didn't need medicine. You didn't need therapy or maybe you did. You know, I, I, I'm not a fan of medicine. You know, I, I do believe there might be power in the right forms of therapy. But, uh, you know, I, I think perspective and just really, I, I think they say comparisons of FIFA joy. I think if you're dealing with childhood traumas, compare yourself. <laughs> Go ahead and compare yourself, you know, and really seek out some of the, the, the tragedies 
that people have lived and are currently living right now. And you'll realize that, hey, you can get through it. You're going to be fine. Hmm. You know, and then wondering what kind of traumas we inflict on our own children. You know, I've had some very terrible moments, you know, where my, my kids have witnessed me in a violent rage and, you know, they don't know how to process that. They don't know the emotions that are fueling it. They don't know the background of, of what caused it. They don't have any clue, you know, all they know is that there's this six foot, 250 pound man who's, you know, going Hulk smash on the house and, you know, what the heck, you can't leave that to them. That's not fair to anybody, you know, so it's, um, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I see that too. Cause, uh, you know, just in my experience and then just going back to even bringing it back to the trade, I had a, another guest on one of the podcasts, one of the earlier podcasts. And, uh, one of the questions I asked him was there is a certain group of, of men out there that can deal with stressors. You know what I mean? Cause with our kids or even in the apprenticeship, there's certain apprentices that the more you yell at them, the further they, they degrade, they, they, you know, sure. they, they come down. Mm-hmm. And uh, I asked him, I was like, well, why is that? And he said, when a certain level of stress happens, you know, endorphins and all these different chemicals, like start happening in your brain, it starts breaking down your cognitive thinking. Mm-hmm. So literally you're being dumber as you go through more stress and it just starts firing off, firing off as the lower you get, it starts firing off more. So we get, you know, sometimes I know for me, like I'll be looking at my kid and I'm like, what in the world were you thinking? <laughs> but in reality, they can't even think, they don't even know what they're doing because one, they're so stressed out with all the yelling and commotion, you know? Yeah. And then I started seeing that direct correlation with apprentices. You know, I, I, I'm guilty of it. Sometimes I'll, I'd, I'd like to chew some of them suckers, you know what I mean? And just be <laughs> on their butt, you know, and yelling at them and where the heck and this and that. And I, they couldn't even make up a secondary spice, dude. <laughs> and it, it wasn't that they couldn't do it. It's just that they were shaking and so stressed out because we were on their butt, you know what I mean? Yeah. And you know how linemen are, you know, the yeah. linemen start and then all of a sudden the foreman comes around and the next thing you know, everybody's pissed off and everybody's just surrounding you and looking at you work. And you're the one person who's trying to do the work. Your hands are shaking and everything. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah, but I think there's, you know, I, I don't know. Now you, you look, you're talking a lot of layers there. You know, yeah. when, when, when you get that guy that just happens to show up, do you think he just was born into this world and was meant to be yelled at and respond to it well? doubt it i think there was a combination of hardwiring mm-hmm. and then a combination of programming there nature and nurture I, I genuinely believe that if you got asked that guy his background there was things mm-hmm. that he did in life maybe his upbringing maybe he played sports maybe he went to the military wh- whatever it was and now he's in he's in front of you right mm-hmm. and he's going to be your model apprentice because you just can't penetrate this guy you can't get to him i mean you you holler and he just seems to be on cruise control he's got you what do you need boss and doesn't respond with emotion doesn't crack to the pressure um you know and and i always you know i see that with linemen Mm -hmm. linemen are very trendy okay and i know linemen are going to listen to this like god screw that eugene guy all he did was talk crap about us the whole time (laughs) these these are my own little personal observations but I, i just know 
Linemen are very trendy because they'll repeat, repeat the same things that one guy said. And so I'd ask them something like, you know, why do you yell at him? Like, what's the premise of the yell? Well, he's got to know how to think under pressure. Why is that? Well, if, if everything goes south one day, he's got to, he's got to know how to, he's got to know how to do this, that, and the other, maybe, you know, pole top rescue me or bucket rescue me. He's got to be able to think straight. Since I've been at Cal Nev in the field, we've had four or five pole top or bucket rescues. We've had a, a hell of a year in 20 year. I mean, in 2020, it's been awful out here. Wow. We've had four fatalities. We've had a couple buddies OD. We've had, um, you know, a couple contacts. We've had, Two guys fall, same company, three weeks apart, you know, fall from about 35 feet, both very good men, both very good hands. Um, and the rescues that that resulted from there, some guys showed up, some guys didn't, you know, uh, some guys froze up. And they're the same guy that says, I got to teach that kid how to think under pressure. You know, if you've ever been involved in a dynamic situation that's very fluid and very critical and very time sensitive, you reflect on that and you realize how helpless you felt, right? Yeah. So the only thing that I could say, if we really want to really want to prepare ourselves, the only thing that you can do is as you're standing there and you're, you're framing that pole and you're saying, okay, what if he gets hit by that 12 up there? If he gets hit by the 12, you could just visualize your reaction. Mm -hmm. visualizing your reaction hopefully some of your visualization plays a role um because i hear the responses you know right down to guys not how to knowing how to use lower controls um you know guys you know tying their burn knot you know off the rope basically off of thin air you know and cutting a guy into the clear you know, all together um linemen completely locking up and, and apprentices going to work <laughs> you know I, I you know we've heard so many versions of these things and if if that's your only premise that you're standing on that you're going to put this guy into a an environment where it's just nothing but a butt chewing 24 7 and it's for that one moment that he may or may not respond you know, let, let's let's dissect that a little bit more and, and, and come at it from more of a psychological foundation, you know, yeah. and I'd, I'd be willing to bet that, you know, a learning environment, you know, even for our children, isn't one where they're getting hooting and hollered at. You know, if you genuinely want information to be retained, you know, constantly being hard on them, great, firm, fair accountability, absolutely, being rigid and firm do it absolutely i just think that a job site full of, of yelling 24 7 to each his own you know I, yeah. i'm not your foreman i can't tell guys how to function yeah but i just don't know that if we were really to, to really get back to a psychological premise mm -hmm. if we're creating the best learning environments with that culture out there i agree with you 100 percent, dude because i mean just even going back to the military some of the most efficient operators that I worked with, some of the most scary guys I worked with, never yell, yeah, and never cuss, yep. And they would look at you and they would talk to you and they would tell you in that stern voice, "You're gonna pay," and mm -hmm. you, you know, best believe you knew you're gonna pay that man, dude. <laughs> you know, versus some guy who's yelling and 
you know what I mean? Making, making all kinds of noise and almost having a stroke over there. You know what I mean? Just yeah. for the sake of it, you know, I and mean, you right. didn't, you didn't respect that guy. You know, we did, we no. did because no. obviously he's ahead of us, you know what I mean? But we never really no. had true, true respect as those silent professionals, as I call them. Yeah. It's you know, beautiful. Who, you know, they knew what they were doing. Yeah. And they were level headed. Yeah. You know, they didn't freak out. Shit hit the fan, excuse my language, but if, if it did, did it? they were in complete control. They had total mastery of the situation. Yeah. At all times, you know. And, and you know what's funny is, you know, we, we do view these guys as our little brothers, and, you know, we got a couple of females in the program, our sisters, and um, it's monkey see, monkey do. Mm. They, they, they look up to us like there ain't no tomorrow. I mean, they yeah. really, they will model our behavior. So I always say this about my kids, you know, monkey see, monkey do, watch what you do, monkey, you know, because they're, they're going to mimic you. They're, they're yeah. going to model themselves. I see it. They come in, they're clean cut, they're geeky, not a tattoo in sight, you know, just some farm kid from from Idaho and, you know, never seen none of that. And then all of a sudden he gets Southern Californianized, you know, he's <laughs> covered and smothered in tattoos. He's abrasive as hell. He's got the big truck, you know, he, he lives in the bar. It, it happens, you know, yeah. I, I, I get it but they're just emulating behaviors that they've seen, you know, and, and oftentimes those behaviors are so influential and so consuming that they will uproot you so quickly. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah, no, no, I agree a hundred percent with what you're saying. Um, Eugene, I just wanted to go ahead and say that many people on the outside might see you as having a successful career, you know, a calling that you're on fire about a family that you care about, and someone who has it all together and never messed up, okay? But I think the appearance of having it all together is not only inaccurate, but potentially harmful for aspiring men looking to grow and improve across different areas of their life. You and I would both be the first to admit that our journeys have been anything but easy, and we definitely don't have it all together. If you don't mind, I'd love to have you be real with the listeners right now. And say, what is the challenge you faced or are still facing that has turned out to be a catalyst for your growth as a man? Okay, I'll share a little bit about my career transition. I won't go into huge details, but the bottom line is, is when my law enforcement career came to a conclusion, mm -hmm. let's say, you know, for seven years, I played cops and robbers, did a great job, uh, made list for promote promotion, was a SWAT operator for three years, ran the Explorer Post, uh, participated in uh, the Cops and Jocks venue, I facilitated community events, everything just top notch, you know, if you, just about anybody in the city of Colton is going to know Gladiman, and I've always said that, you know, I fought fair in that, in that line of work, and that I could walk through South Colton, which is a gang-riddled neighborhood today, and not have any drama, so reaching that pinnacle in a career you know, where, you know, like, okay, I'm smooth selling. I was meant to do this and I'm getting real good in it. I, I have tons of energy. I'm starting to acquire wisdom and my skill set is just getting broadened. Everything's I'm firing on all cylinders. I really am. Everything's going great. And one mistake, boom, one mistake. And now you're being, I was told, Eugene, we're going to need your badge and gun. We're going to need you to sit at home. Monday through Thursday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. You're going to be subject to our availability. 
Here's some parameters around this. Here's some parameters around that. So at this time, I was just dating my wife and we were living together. And this is before our boys. And, uh, you know, for the first time in my adult life, I didn't know my defined intentional identity. I didn't know where things were going to lead. Now, the mistake was very, very soft mm -hmm. and wouldn't make sense to listeners. But let's just say it was minuscule. But the context of it was was very, very uh, sensitive, I guess you could say. Yeah. So there I was for nine months for the first time in my life. Nine months not knowing how the hell I was going to provide for my kids, not knowing what the future looked like, not knowing where I was going to go. And all I did was drink. And lift weights that's all I did two things that I'm very good at <laughs> and that's all I did for nine months and I sat there and you know I, I'd drink myself to sleep at night and and you know those were the days when my daughters weren't over and my wife was my girlfriend at the time she was working graveyard so you know first time in my life that I dealt with any sort of loneliness and uh so I'd sit at home and I had a, I had a couple of dogs at the time a little cocker spaniel and a and a bulldog, and I'm, I'm telling you, minus those two, I don't know what I would have done, you know, on some of those nights, um, in terms of just just very very bad thoughts, put it that way. Those those yeah. things crossed my mind, and I'm basically living off my administrative leave pay, which wasn't much, and what my girlfriend's bringing to the table, and I'm basically being supported as a grown man, and that was a a huge kick to my ego and so time went on and ultimately I sat in front of the chief and the city manager and I had a stack of accommodations that I that I was given throughout my years and then I had the, the disciplinary accusation I had the accommodations in one pile the disciplinary accusation in the other pile and I slid it over the chief and I said does all of this get outweighed by this and he looked over at the city manager and the city manager and the lawyer looked back at him and then gave him a head nod that basically told him not to answer the question mm. right so ultimately that was, that was called my Skelly hearing that's where he could have overturned it he could have overturned the decision to terminate yeah it gave me the opportunity to resign and I thought I'd go ahead and pursue the arbitration option and and leave it up to a third party and not just go down. So anyway, I ultimately resigned and then I had to go into this line of work. So I signed the books for six consecutive months. And the first call that came my way was unloading material down at Sunrise down in San Diego. And it was for Hinkles. And I was so broke, Dave, that I couldn't, it was down in San Diego, I was gonna have to hotel it. I didn't really know the whole, you know, truck and trailer operation that uh, of the lineman world mm -hmm. and i didn't have enough money to pay for a hotel to take this call and it was my first call and well shoot you know um how am i going to turn this down so i ended up having to turn that call down because i didn't have the money to even get down there so second call comes in a few days later and it's for par and it's a hole digging call and i take it and I knew that that day, my reputation as a line hand, as a lineman, was starting right then and there. And I went from 
you know, being, you know, depressed at home, not having an identity to showing up with a groundman ticket, right? I had a ticket in my pocket that indicated that I had a skill set when I really didn't, you know, I mean, it just, I wasn't a skilled groundman at the time. You know, I, I had a lot of common sense. I can pick up on processes and different things, but I couldn't, you know, perform as a functioning member of a crew or valuable member of a crew. We dug holes, Dave, and this is where anybody who listens to this, we need to restore meritocracy to our industry and our society, okay? The, the whole digging call was for eight guys. We were digging holes for, they were either 90 feet, they were, we were digging nine footers, no, 11 footers or 13 footers. So we were digging for 90s and 110s, and they were going to be all helo work. So we're stretching out a couple hundred yards with a hose and, you know, jackhammers and packing them up hills, and... I didn't know the strategy. I'm like, how big is the pole butt? I know the depth. You know, I didn't know a whole lot about line work that I could put together, right? Because, yeah. you know, looking back on it, a crappy hole dig on, on helicopter work could ruin the whole day, right? <laughs> and we're going out ahead of the job. Hmm. So anyway, to summarize it, my partner that I was put with, he was a recycled apprentice, now grunt, lifetime grunt. And he cabs up and throws black visqueen over the windshield and goes to sleep on me. And I kept working, man. I kept working and I kept working and I kept digging and I kept working. And finally, off in the distance, I seen our GF glass in us from about a half mile out. And, and so I, I woke up my partner and I said, hey, man, I need you to get out of the truck and start working. And he's like, dude, as soon as these holes are dug, we're going to get laid off. So the longer we take, the more money we make. And I'm like, I don't believe in that philosophy, dude. I said, our GF's watching us. He's like, what do you mean our GF's watching us? I said, I caught him from half a mile out, blasting, you know? And he's like, nah, dude, you're just a paranoid ex-cop. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, it was Wade McKay. He's a half mile out. He had binoculars on us. I'm telling you. So anyway, we start digging. Finally, I got a partner. We're punching out two of these a day. Moving on to the next one, right? And Wade's falling in love with us. Day number two of week two. All right. This is where that integrity comes in when it comes to, your, to our occupation. I didn't know a soul down there. I was on my own. I had no political pull whatsoever in line work. I was completely on my own. Day two of week two, everybody gets two checked and laid off. Wade gives me an address to show up to in the morning. And I showed up to a distro yard and it was my very first crew I was on. A guy named Larry Hopkins from Louisiana. Vinny Legere, rest in peace, my friend, uh, from Canada. And my buddy, John Yorchek, he was from Oregon, but, you know, he's a SoCal boy now. He's moved here. He's got his family and everything. Hmm. Unbeknownst to me, Johnny had just gone through a, a bit of a mental breakdown, you know, for some things that he was dealing with, you know, childhood issues and whatnot. Larry was getting ready for retirement. And in the near future, Vinny would lose one of his 32-year-old sons. And we all somehow got put there for each other wow and we were all exactly what each other needed in their lives mm. and a few days in you know not knowing what the, how the relationships would develop Larry looks at me and he says you don't know what you're doing Haas and I said no I don't sir mm. but I'm gonna tell you right now I'm gonna work harder and learn faster than anybody you've ever met and he said it's simple you work like a man we'll treat you like one and I said that's all I need to hear and that was in August of 2010. 
and I haven't skipped a beat since, man. Just the industry's been good to me. It's it's brought me to places that I never thought I can go. It's created a life that I never thought I'd have. And I owe so much to it. You know, they could offer me brass in my collar today to go back to law enforcement. I wouldn't take it. Not a chance in hell. You know, this industry is it's probably one of the best, if not the best, construction industry in the world. Hmm. And owe so much to it, man. And so going through those peaks and valleys, you know, like I said, getting to that pinnacle of law enforcement where I was top cop and all of a sudden getting that swift kick in the junk <laughs> to where you don't have an identity, you don't have a career, you don't have, you know, means to support your family, you don't have anything. And then all of a sudden, you know, going through the necessary steps to rebuild your own life and just knowing that at the end of the day, you know, like Larry Elder says, hard work wins. <laughs> it does. And I, I've proven that in two different careers. Hmm. Wow. I, I like that, you know, because uh, you're absolutely right. Um, your perseverance through that, I mean, where most people would have just succumbed to the drinking and, you know, just being depressed and stuff like that. You chose to use that catalyst to rise above, you know. You didn't let that define you. No. You let that catapult you to the next level to where you leveled out. You know what I mean? Where, I mean, you're doing great. You know what I mean? And that's just a testament to who you are, your character, and how your father raised you. You know what Amen. I mean? That, that's, that's, that's awesome. And to just hear how, you know, I'm, I'm a, I don't believe that, we are, you know, just, I don't believe in randomness. Okay. I believe there's a purpose for everything. Okay. And the way you guys are put together at that moment in time where each one of you guys were a need for each other as a group, as a cohesive unit. I mean, that's just awesome to see how that happened in your life. You know what I mean? You got a, a great calling on you. You know, that's uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on here because I, you know, just, just briefly just talking to you on, on Instagram and stuff like that. You know what I mean? I could, I could see there's something more to you. That's flattering. I, that is flattering. And uh, I know there's going to be some great things coming up and great projects. You know what I mean? I'd hope to, uh, to work with you on and stuff like that. Um, one of the last things I want to say is uh, say you're leaving a coffee shop. And you were happened to bump into your younger self 10 years back. The younger you ask current you for some life advice. You're on your way to a super important meeting and you only have 60 seconds to talk with this dude. What advice would you give and what would you say to him? I, I, okay. Number one. The best ability is availability. I think if I've ever had any any problem with anything, mm -hmm. it would be you know keeping those commitments. Continue to work hard. Never had a problem with hard work. You know, it'd be like the gifted athlete that didn't show up for the game, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I mean by the best ability is availability. And one thing that I've come to realize, and and, and this is, I think I knew it then, and I think I know it now is keep, keep treating everybody the same, no matter what they could do for you. Mm, I like and I think that pays off 
David, like it, it's just mind boggling. When I did something for somebody eight years ago that was so insignificant to me, didn't even know I was doing it. Mm-hmm. And then it comes back to pay off some amazing dividend to me years later. Mm-hmm. And I, I see it so much in our line of work where people will unfortunately put forth an, an unrealistic amount of effort you know, for political gain, right? But our peers see that. And I think it's the guy that just treats everybody the same. Doesn't matter if it's our our local business manager or if it's our first step apprentice. You know, I genuinely believe that everybody should be given that opportunity to just be treated with dignity and respect. Mm. And you'll come to find out that in time, people appreciate that more than we realize. Mm, So I, I definitely treat everybody the same. You know, because we, we never know who we're talking to. We don't. And you know, be yourself. That's one thing that I've always struggled with because I didn't really have a deeply rooted identity. You know, I never really, um, I, I couldn't really, not until just the past few years where I could just say, you know what? I, I told Shauna, my wife, when, when I went into this position, that it, it, the political climate's heavy, right? Yeah. So, it, you know, company VPs are all around us and, you know, people call in for different things and have different needs and expectations and whatnot. And, and I told Shauna, I said, I, if I go in there, I have to be myself. I have to be who the hell I am, you know, because I think people at that level, they can sense someone who's artificial. Mm. And, and if it was me and myself and my own personal standards and work ethic and moral principles and reputation that got me the opportunity then I should probably continue being that guy Mm -hmm. you know so just treating everybody the same and and you know being exactly who you are because that's the most natural version of you you can be Mm. yes absolutely I I agree with that 100 percent and you know even on social media platforms and stuff like that some of the times I have to I, I talk to these other guys who are on there and they always say the same thing be your authentic self yeah you know because no one else is like you you know no no one else has a message like you you know um one of the things i always pride myself on is sometimes your mess is your message yeah absolutely that's beautiful and that's the truth man because uh no two biographies are the same there's there's it's you know, and that's why I love talking to people. You know, I, I always get with these apprentices and, 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 you know, different guys. And, and my, it always frustrates my wife too. Cause she's like, you know, her and I would go on a date and have a seat, seat at a bar, you know? Uh-huh. And next thing you know, the, the female bartender is telling us about a miscarriage she had two months ago. And she's like, how the hell do you get that kind of information out of people? Mm-hmm. You know, just be sincere, be interested, ask questions that mean something to them, not to you, you know? Mm-hmm. And you'd be amazed that people, you know, with all the bravado in our industry, and I think going back to the beginning of our conversation, there's so much ego, so much bravado, so such a high expectation of masculinity that we often are afraid to share some of these struggles that we all have. And I think, you know, just being a hard on sleeve guy where, hey, man, this is who I am. This is some of the crap I'm dealing with. And this is what I may or may not need your help with. 
And you want to be around guys that, you know, celebrate your good news and help you through your bad news, right? Mm-hmm. And th- that's a difficult brand of lineman to find. Oh, it is. And I mean, and like, you know, like you, it is. I mean, it, it's it's so difficult to find that. Um, some of these successful guys that I follow, you know, in life or in entrepreneurship or whatever, they all say the same thing, which is if you want to be that successful person, you know, hang around with five guys that are successful. You will be that. (laughs) You know what I mean? You're going to be that guy. You know, you got to find yourself that's on another level than you and then level up. You know what I mean? So if you're looking Mm -hmm. for someone who has that deeper value, that, that higher sense of uh, uh, acute awareness, you know what I mean? To what's going on in the world, to uh, even just karmic debt, like you were talking about, you know, just doing something for someone that you're not expecting anything back and then it comes back to you in the future. That's karmic debt that you sowed. You know, that's the law of reaping and sowing. Absolutely. You know, and it's, and it all falls back to, you know, it's biblical, (laughs) you know what I mean? So when you start surrounding yourself with more and more positive people like that, you know, your circle will just start growing. You know what I mean? Your, your level of influence will just start growing. You know, absolutely. I, I think it's so important to, to surround yourself with people like that. Uh, one of the things my father used to tell me is uh, show me who your friends are and I'll tell you who you are. That was mm-hmm. his favorite saying. And it, it, it holds true. You know what I mean? Even today, you know what I mean? I can, see a guy and see how he hangs around with his friends and stuff like that. And I'll know exactly who he is. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Another, it's put another way. You are the company you keep. Exactly. You know, and, and it's absolutely true, man. It really is. It's a, you know, I I think a guy whose motivation is as, as strong as yours and taking on, you know, there's plenty of glorious ways to make moves and, and make quick money in this world you know yeah but this is such a next level topic that i don't think anybody's really tapped into and i'm i'm sure there's folks out there but you know to be industry specific about it i think you're going to open up a lot of doors man and you're really going to start that conversation you yeah. know and and ha- almost have an implied i don't want to call it guilt because that sounds like a bad word uh, but uh, an implied conscience uh, uh, about the father that we are to our kids mm-hmm. and where we could at least start tickling the brain of those linemen and, and uh, you know, be that, be that father who, you know, shows up more than the paycheck does. Absolutely. I agree with you a hundred percent. And uh, one of the things I heard from you earlier, which I thought was awesome, you know, is just how your dad was there. He didn't have, uh, one of the, the takeaways from your story is how you guys didn't grow up with a lot, right? No. But your father was there and that was so much more important. Because see, for, for me, the reverse was I was buying my kids off with stuff to make up for the time that I wasn't engaged in their life. And <laughs> that meant nothing to them at all. They just wanted daddy. You know what I mean? So. It, it's awesome to see the two different uh, variables, the black and the white of it. You know what I mean? And just kind yeah. of look at it and see it and be like, wow, that's just, that's amazing. And that's why I do this just to get different perspectives, different ideas. Uh, one of the main reasons behind the name to show up 
is because we all know as linemen, we have a show up in the morning. And what do we do in that show up? We show up, we're, we're boots are laced, we're ready to roll for the day, we get our orders, you know, we figure out what crew, who's going where, you know, if someone's going to go spot poles or do whatever. And we get our orders for that day at that show up and we discuss yeah. pitfalls of, of the job or, you know, what I mean? get our, get our, uh, our tailboard going and everything like that. You know what I mean? And that's why I named it the show up that because that's what we're doing here. You know what I mean? In, in the group on this podcast, we're showing up, we're talking, we're, we're bouncing ideas off each other. We're, we're learning from each other. We're growing and it's just awesome. You know what I mean? One of the things in the Bible it talks about is iron sharpens iron. And I firmly believe that. If you hang around pop metal, guess what? <laughs> guess what, buddy? Yeah. And th that's another thing that I, so I'll go, I'll go back into, after I journeyed out, uh, one of our local yards, Redlands, right? Historically, that's where the par stars, so to speak, of Southern California were developed, you know, back in the, let's say somewhere between, let's say early 2000s through 2010, right? Uh-huh. Well, some things had changed there, you know, after I journeyed out. And that's where I took my first call as a journeyman lineman, me and my pole buddy that I topped out with, right? Mm -hmm. uh, quickly, we kind of became a standout crew in the yard. And I said, man, I just journeyed out a couple months ago. Why are we a standout crew? And I've always been an iron sharpens iron guy. Mm -hmm. And I told myself, if I'm the best guy on the crew, and me and my pole buddy, we were comparable. We were both, you know, decent hands. Mm -hmm. Just com common sense having guys that worked hard, right? That goes a long way. Yeah. So I always told myself, if I'm the best guy on the crew, I'm leaving. Because I'm not in the right place. I, I'm not around the iron that I need to be around. Mm. So I, I, could, I could sit there and I could let my ego inflate. And I can, I can learn what I already know and teach others what I know. But I know there's more that I need to learn. So I need to get the hell out of here. Hmm. So I would drag up and I'd, I'd call some old buddies that I knew were better than me and I'd get myself around them. And sure enough, day one, I, I felt like an apprentice again. Hmm. And it felt great because guess what? It was that iron sharpening iron and we'd go to work, we'd learn and, and then, okay, things would kind of be stagnant and, and uh, people would move around and whatnot. And, it, once again, if, if I plateaued, I got the hell out of Dodge mm -hmm. and I went around some guys that were going to challenge me and I encourage other linemen to do that. D don't throw it in neutral. And one of their biggest problems in our industry, in my opinion, is, you know, the ticket title changes from apprentice lineman to journeyman lineman. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, it almost, it, and everybody says that's when the learning really begins. And I agree with that, that that's on the job learning, but I think we have a tendency to plateau and find ourselves a, a, a bubble of comfort and and park it there and i encourage you guys to get around people that are better than you yeah and and you know not guys that embarrass you because of that but show up saying hey look fellas i came here to be challenged and i know i don't know it all but i know you guys are good and let's get after it mm -hmm. and lyman love teaching their peers lyman love people who who aren't egotistical and we have a nature about us and it's a real good one and we really do love to, to teach and another good nature that we have about ourselves is that we will help each other through struggles we will I, i've seen outpourings of generosity I, i've seen good deeds by linemen uh, it, i'm talking 
mm-hmm. dudes that have you know helped guys across the country absolutely and you know if we would take on that same ownership of our own families and our own children mm-hmm. then i guarantee that our families would flourish just like our industry does absolutely brother and just to touch on that real quick i just want to give a shout out to uh, low drag line hand um they did a phenomenal job of raising some uh, money for my younger brother who's a journeyman lineman who passed away a month ago wow and, uh, they're able i mean they never met the kid nothing like that but they saw and recognized the fallen brother and he raised up money to go ahead and help out my brother's family you know what i mean his wife and three three daughters and you're absolutely right the brotherhood is strong it's still alive and that's what i loved about this trade i mean no matter where you go i mean yeah you're gonna have those people who obviously life gave them a bad hand or whatever you know what i mean they're dealing with something okay yeah but like you said majority of linemen are there they're brothers they know what it is you know what i mean they've struggled they have their faults everything like that but at the end of the day you're still their brother and they want to just lift you up you know what i mean and i think that's what life is about it's about not just giving a handout but a hand up if that makes mm-hmm. sense you know it does it does and, and you know you know folks like the gentleman from low drag line hand you know they that guy took the initiative you know Heck, he, yeah he identified a problem and, and I'll give you some stories of, of disappointment and some stories of, I'll, I'll share two different opposite ends of the spectrum real quick. Mm-hmm. Lane Berkey, a few years ago, he, he's a local guy, local lineman, takes on a safety uh, position there with a particular company, comes down with Alzheimer's, right? Mm-hmm. So his, his brain's going to start degrading and, and uh, he's not quite at retirement age yet, but it just, man, it took an early turn for the worse. We're in a yard, and I'll leave company names out of it and whatnot, but uh-huh. full of mostly high-speed, 80, 90-hour-a-week working young linemen. We passed the hat for Lane. We got $300, dude. It was embarrassing, right? Yeah. Okay. So that was that. You don't want people to give under compulsion. So you just chalk it up as a loss and move on. So this just this past uh, couple weeks, we had a – a fifth step apprentice he unfortunately came in contact with 4kv and came in contact with the 4kv and what ended up happening is he's in the hospital he's got burns he's going to have a long road to recovery and we have classes there at the jtc where we have we're assigned to the same group of guys and the same group of guys pass the hat and in one day they ended up collecting 6,200 bucks for their buddy in one day, you know? So you got this circumstance where a group of guys, probably over a hundred people coughs up $300 an average of let's say three bucks a piece. And I know a couple of people threw a hundred dollar bill in that hat. And then you got a class of 25 guys that collect 6,200 bucks for a brother who's suffering. So when I see the contrast there i see that you know we got this youthful group this youthful group of impressionable students who's who's taking it upon themselves and they know that hey their buddy in that class you know had enough equity built in them you know had left an impression on them to where they could say man if it could happen to him it could happen to me Hmm. and his family and his kids are going to go through it he's going to be in and out of burn wards and he's going to be getting skin graft and 
and all that good stuff. And, and, and let's make sure that finances are the least of his worries, you know? So to me, I can't stand when guys tell me that the brotherhood doesn't exist. Eh, it, we got some things that we can improve on. I agree yeah. with that. I don't think it is quite what Henry Miller thought it'd be here in 2020. Right. Yeah. But I do think that there is a, a hunger to restore it, to restore it to, you know, what previous generations uh, claim it once was. And yeah, we don't share your camaraderie. We don't share your community and we don't share your adversities, but we want it. I, I assure you, we want it. Absolutely. And, I agree with you a hundred percent, brother. I mean, I, I think it's amazing, you know what I mean? Just to, that you touched on that because it's true. I mean, we want it, you know I mean? That's the whole point of our organization. Mm -hmm. We're a brotherhood, you know, you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us, oh. you know, and that's the mindset that needs to be set in. And that's the mindset that needs to be instilled. And it starts not only in your household, but it starts also in your field. I mean, you're a mentor. You're a leader where you're at. You have influence. And to see you put in that position where God has raised you to be, to be able to mentor these young guys coming in and to restore the brotherhood. I mean, I think it's, it's so awesome, dude. I mean, I, I can't applaud you. You know what I mean? Enough, because what you're doing is so powerful, bro. It really yeah. is. I appreciate that. And I don't know if you noticed that, that message on that shirt, you know, that 47 shirt that we put out with line mm -hmm. one, one, and it's raising the standard. Okay. If you want to raise your standard, restore the brotherhood. Yep. I, I think you restore that brotherhood. The standard will take care of itself, mm -hmm. you know, because then we start to, you know, we start to undo different uh, principles that we've lost track of guidance, mentoring, quality, accountability, ownership, right? Mm-hmm. All those things are contained in brotherhood. <laughs> no, it is. And all of those things will pick up the slack on that standard, right? Mm -hmm. So we look, we look at our number of accidents that we have in the industry. We look at our quality of our work that's sometimes in question. And we think that there ain't no other faction of, of line workers that can pull this off. We're being foolish, my friend. <laughs> mm. There's plenty of competent hands out there, union or non-union. They're yeah. here. Oh you yeah, know, I agree. I, I mean, I, it I, is a legitimized risk and there's no guarantee. So we, if we want to raise that standard, let's get to restoring that brotherhood. And that, that has to come from a place of sincerity that ha has to come from a place of, of personal action, a place of, of just being the example. Mm. Accountability too. Accountability is huge. You know, what does a typical lineman do when, when he screws something up? Mm -hmm. It's always somebody else's fault. <laughs> yeah. I, we have transformer incidents out here, right? Where, Oh, well the yard dog brought the can out. We hooked it up and uh, you know, the can needed six, nine or something. Right. You didn't check your name plate, but you're somehow playing, paying the yard dog. The yard dog just went to NLC, got a $17 an hour job. Wants to be just like you. It ain't his fault. It ain't his fault. It's your no. fault. You're the, you're the professional craftsman. It's your fault, brother. <laughs> take ownership of it learn what went wrong understand that you put 12,000 volts across a coil that can only take 6,900 and, and and let's fix it all right let's not do that again because it's embarrassing yeah you know but uh, <laughs> that's funny man what time just just to touch base before we close uh 
I was working with this guy down south and uh, he was a utility hand. And he was, you know, you get some hands from the utility that are spot on, okay? Yeah, but sure. they're good at what they know. They're good at their system. Yep. So he took it for granted that in construction, you got to check the nameplate. You got to check that impedance. You got to make sure that's a 14-4 can or whatever. You know what I mean? Right, right. Well, he had never, I guess, worked with a, a 480 single pot, you know? Okay. So the guy brought out this can. He hooked it up, okay? And I had just came back from a, an eye appointment, okay? I was getting some new Oakleys done for me, whatever. So they had just dilated my eyes, bro. So I couldn't see shit. So he's up in there, you know what I mean? It was a, it was, it was a, it was a shit show from the beginning, right? And okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm watching him. He's, he's hooking it up. And I tell him, I'm like, oh, you want the voltmeter? Check the voltage. <laughs> no, I'm good. He's got lights. Let's go. I'm like, okay, I guess that's how he did it at the utility or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, I'm out of here. And I took the trouble truck and I left, you know, because we had to get back to the yard because we had another call. You know, the 69 line went down somewhere. Anyhow, uh, he calls me on the radio and he's like, dude, he's like, you got to come back. I'm like, what, what happened? And he's like, bro, I don't know what happened, dude, but this dude's house is on fire. Oh no. He had his, all the trailers that he had hooked up. He had like these motor homes. He had daisy chained them all together. So it smoked everything, dude. You could see the fire in the wall where it, it went across. He put 480 through that house, dude. Gotcha. And the guy's like, oh, I don't know what's going on, but the, uh, the, uh, I have a grinder and it doesn't shut off and it's chasing my old lady around in the house. <laughs> Holy hell, man. I'm like, oh, God. I was like, did you check the nameplate? And he's like, are we supposed to do that? It's like, yeah, typically that's what you do. He's like, oh, well, that guy brought us the pot. I thought it was a, you know, a typical 120 <laughs> I was like, nah, man, you got, I was like, let's go check it out. So he pulled the cutout because it's, you know, conventional and uh, pulled the cutout. Went to go see, and dude, he had smoked everything. I don't know how the heck he didn't burn that old man's house down, dude. But, uh, yep, just coming back to accountability, you know, the guy was like, Oh, well, the guy who brought out the pot should have checked, and no, it yeah. was your fault, dummy, you know. Yeah, there's a, uh, a gentleman that I really like a lot, a guy named Chris Larson. Uh, uh -huh. He's taught at the school for many years. He used to run the school, now he, he works for Par Quanta, and, uh, at the national level and uh, statistically you know these incidents are virtually never an act of god <laughs> you know <laughs> they, they, they always when you dissect them and say okay you know how could this accident have been prevented right yeah it, it's always a form of human error man and we we can't we can improve on that we can't eliminate it can't eliminate it we're, we're not perfect it's impossible to achieve per perfection but we can definitely improve on it as an industry absolutely we, we, we most definitely can <laughs> i know we can do better if we're not asking more from ourselves we need to raise our standards hey exactly and <laughs> one of the things too that i learned as an apprentice is uh you know early on was anything made by man will fail you know even when well, you do it right there's a chance that sucker could fail you know i've had switch gears load brake switch gears that should have been pulled out of commission. And then after the fact, the utility tells us that, oh, good thing you found that. That's 
those have been burning up. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know. It just burned up an eight foot stick, you know? <laughs> so, the you Lord. know, stuff happens like that. You know what I mean? And that's part of the nature of our business that, you know, we, we do it. That's why we get paid better than most, you know, but uh, mm -hmm. cutting corners definitely is not a, a good thing for this industry and doing your best to, to do what's right and, and uh, you know, donning your PPE accordingly and using the tools. I mean, dude, we didn't have tools like this back in the day. You know, some of the stuff they're coming up with now, dude, I'm like, hell yeah, I could have used that a long time ago. Maybe my yeah, shoulders absolutely. are the way they are. You know? <laughs> but uh, oh, no, we'll never stop innovating. That's for sure. Absolutely, brother. But uh, let's go ahead and wrap this up today. And uh, I just want to ask you to tell the audience, dude, where people can find you. I know you're on Line 11, but where else can they find you if they want to reach out to you, brother? Okay, so the clothing line that we kicked off, it was Line 11 Clothing. Uh, given my background with law enforcement, my wife's um, nursing experience, and uh, the power line. So it doesn't matter if you're on the line, working the line, on the front line, holding the line, you name it. Uh, that's our message, Line11Clothing on Instagram. Mm -hmm. uh, my name's Eugene Glaudeman. Uh, sure, that's going to be spelled out in the narrative. Mm -hmm. But E-U-G-E-N-E. Last name Glaudeman, G-L-O-U-D-E-M-A-N on Instagram and Facebook. Much more active. I, I like the narrative of Facebook and I like pictures and I like memories. So in terms of me personally, you'll find me far more active on, on Facebook and with the, uh, the clothing line on Instagram. Yeah. Feel free to follow us. We've just broke 800 followers. We've been doing it since about August. We've sold over a thousand shirts. It's been an awesome experience. Mm -hmm. uh, we actually contribute to a foundation, the Warrior Angels Foundation. Mm -hmm. So it's a ex special forces set of brothers that mm -hmm. are basically curing, not treating, but curing people who are suffering from traumatic brain injury mm -hmm. through holistic measures. So keeping them out of the VA and off the medicine and getting them on something that's actually going to make progress. So every time you purchase something from us, some money goes to them. Some good guys over there. Uh, matter of fact, uh, episode 1056 on Joe Rogan, mm -hmm. you'll see Andrew Marr, the co-founder on that episode. I encourage you guys to follow, follow them, follow us and take a look at that episode on Rogan episode 1056, some fascinating information in there. Hmm. No, right on. Thanks, Gene. I appreciate you coming on here, brother. And we'll definitely keep in touch. And uh, mm -hmm. I just want to go ahead and uh, end this and just thank you, bro. And I believe in what you're doing, dude. And just keep it up, bro. You're a, you're a positive influence for everybody you touch, dude. And I, I mean that, dude. So well, that's the pot calling the kettle back, my friend. So you keep doing <laughs> what you're doing, man. And uh, anything we could do to help you flourish, help you grow, help you keep that. Seems like you, you focus on a on a quality of audience and not just the masses. And that's good, you know, don't dilute it. Keep doing what you're doing. People who are genuinely interested in this, uh, you're doing a damn good thing. And we need to see more and more people like you emerge, man. And thank you. Mm. I appreciate it, brother. And uh, that concludes our message for the night. And thank you, brother. And uh, we'll talk to you later. Honest God, pleasure. Take care, sir.